to all Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice and all that you said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. And now, here is the king walking before you, but I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. And I have walked before you from my youth even to this day. Here I am. Bear witness against me before the Lord and His anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whom, whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, He is witness. Alright, so... Samuel says, I've done what you said, I've appointed the king. His last act as a judge was basically to put himself on trial. What, does he, what question does he ask? <clears throat> what have I taken? You know, who have I cheated? And what's their answer? He hasn't taken anything and cheated anybody. He's not oppressed or defrauded anyone. He is innocent. And the Lord is witness that they have found nothing that he's done that has been wrong in his career as judge. Now, he says that, but you remember what God had said the king was going to do? Take, 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 take. That's the very thing that Samuel had not done as judge. He had not taken. All right, um, come into questions on those five verses. Yes, Alan. Let's look at Samuel for just a minute. Here's a little boy who has a wonderful mother and apparently a wonderful father. But then he's put in an environment, a religious environment, where things aren't very good. And so he comes up, and then the people reject him, he feels. His boys are not good boys. That's a heartache for an old man. This old man whose sons aren't what they ought to be goes ahead and does what God wants him to do and selects another man who doesn't seem to have all the equipment maybe he needs, but God empowers. And basically Samuel's saying, I'm done. I'm finished. You judge me, but here's the king that you asked. There was a lot of heartache in Samuel's life. A very good man, but he saw a lot of disastrous consequences when he invested in other people yet they didn't follow through with righteousness in their own lives. Excellent point. That's worth thinking about. You sometimes imagine that all really good men have mostly success, blessing, and happiness. And sometimes when it doesn't work out that way, we become very disillusioned and resentful, like it's not supposed to happen that way. But I think you would say Samuel was a really good man, good judge, good leader. You know, there's hardly anything bad you can say about Samuel, but you're right. You look at it this way, and the nation he's led has really turned against the will of God. The boys that he's raised, raised have turned against God, and he doesn't have much left to show for it, and still he's faithful and, and doing the right thing. Is that the way we're going to be? Or will we be just, you know, I, I, I did all this, and I'm resentful that God didn't work it out better than that for me. It's a good, really good point. Other thoughts? 
Okay, well, he's now going to speak the word of the Lord to them and discuss for them one more time kind of the situation that they are in. 6 to 18. about the history of God's relationship with them. What had God done that sort of started it all? He brought them out of Egypt. And that was a tremendous thing. They were oppressed by Pharaoh. God delivered them. The exodus from Egypt always kind of signals the beginning of their life as a nation. And this was all the Lord, what the Lord did as he sent Moses and Aaron, delivered them. And then after God had been so gracious to deliver them, what did they do? Forgot. Man, they forgot the Lord. It's a terrible thing to forget somebody who's done such a marvelous and amazing thing to relieve you of this terrible oppression by his power and his grace. But they forgot the Lord. And so what did God do? He delivered them to their enemies. Yeah, exactly. He sold them into the hand of their enemies. He brought other nations to oppress them to punish them, to teach them a lesson. And what would they do when an oppressing nation was very severe against them? Absolutely. They cried out, said, we've sinned. We need deliverance. And what would God do? He'd deliver them. He'd send them men like Jerubbaal. Remember Jerubbaal's more common name? Gideon. Gideon. 
and Beden, who uh, there's a, again a versional difference that may be Bayrak, almost identical in the Hebrew characters, and Japheth and Samson. When, when they would humble themselves and turn back to God, when did God ever not deliver them? Can't think of a single time. Of course, maybe they got a little annoyed by the need to humble themselves and repent and cry out to God. You know, maybe they like a system that didn't require that. I don't know. But he says you got to this point where you have Nahash the Ammonite who comes against you. And what do they do this time? They don't cry out to God for deliverance. What do they cry out? Give us a king. You know, we want a king to reign over us. He said, but the Lord was your king. They blamed their troubles on their form of government, but it wasn't that they didn't have a king. They just needed to come back to God, and God would deliver them. But they didn't want that. He said, so here's your king. You ask for it, you have it, but it doesn't, doesn't really change anything. He says in verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you. What has really changed? Is the king going to keep them from needing to obey God? Is the king going to really be the deliverer? They may have a king, but, but God, it's still God. If they obey God, they'll have deliverance. If they don't, they won't. It didn't help to get a king. God is still in charge. You can't ask for a king and God just steps off his throne and says, okay, I won't rule you anymore. You might, you might reject God as the ruler, but you can't get him off his throne and keep him from having power and authority over you and ultimately punishing you. So really nothing has changed there's still not going to be blessings without repentance. And he said, I want you to see what a big deal this is. What did God send kind of be a sign that they might not have made the wisest choice in this? What was the sign? Thunder. Yeah, the thunder at a time of the year when it never rained or thundered. And it sort of spooked them and it made them realize, whoa, we did the wrong thing. They greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. But once you look at the way God is describing it, they really did the wrong thing. They had an attitude toward God. That they just didn't really want God's leadership. They got tired of turning back to God and humbling themselves and repenting. So they asked for a king. God gives them a king, but he says, you're still going to have to humble yourself and repent. It really is not going to change anything. Comments and thoughts about that section. So 19 to 25. And all people said to Samuel, Pray for your servant to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after the things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. 
for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So, how do the people feel? <laughs> They're afraid. And what do they say to Samuel? What? Pray for us. Man, we've, we've done the wrong thing. We've multiplied our sins by asking for this king. And Samuel says, don't be afraid. You know, if you'll serve God, everything will be okay. God won't abandon you. And that's amazing grace on God's part. He gets more or less rejected. And he's still willing to bless them and deliver them if they will serve him and return back to him. That's amazing that God feels that way. I think I just said, you know, next time you get in trouble, you're going to have to tough it out. Because you don't want me, I won't come. But he says, if you'll serve me, I'll, I'll still take care of you. God's not going to abandon you. And what does Samuel himself commit himself to do? Praying for them and teaching them. He's not going to sin against him by not praying for them. And he's going to continue to instruct them in the good and right way. That's the character of Samuel. Because he's felt rejected, as Alan was describing. And yet... What's he going to do? He's going to keep praying for them. He's going to keep teaching them. He's going to try to help them to come to the Lord. It's the same thing we ought to be doing. We ought not to sin against one another by ceasing to pray for each other and not instructing each other. I think Samuel shows a great attitude. He doesn't become resentful and bitter. But he says, you just got to fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. And think about what great things he's done for you. And if you don't, what's going to happen to them in the end of the chapter? You and your king. Same standard for the king as for the people. The king's not going to be exempt from the responsibility of obeying God and not rebelling against him. Good chapter. Comments and thoughts on this? Yes. Uh, a lot of the times, you know, the denominational sense of God in the New Testament, you know, he's all grace and he's all love and he's all forgiveness. And then in the Old Testament, people commonly think that God is a God of judgment, of fire, and brimstone, and anger, and, and wrath, and that God isn't merciful. But we see here that that's not the case. Yeah, God committed this evil. God is the same Old Testament, yeah. New Testament. His yeah. character is the same. He's loving in the Old Testament, and he has wrath in the New Testament. There's not yeah. a no difference, but people often do say that. <laughs> Jacob. What do you think about the idea of him thinking it would be a sin not well, I mean, he sees he's got a responsibility. He's their judge. He's their prophet. He's, you know, he's going to intercede for them. He, he cares about them. And for him just to abandon them and not intercede and not instruct would be wrong. Dan. I see really a stark contrast here. We're in verse 18. What uh, provokes this fear and awe toward God was the thunder, was the, the fireworks. And then 
contrast that in verse 24, where Moses, or, uh, Samuel is pleading with him, only fear the Lord and serve him, um, for consider what great things he has done for you. Um, what should inspire awe and fear and reverence for God should not be the mighty miracles that perhaps we read in the Bible. It should be, wow, God loves me. And God has saved me. And God has delivered me from myself and my sin um, from this life. And that should be what should provoke this amazing perspective on my God. Great point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, once you think about what God's done, how can you not serve Him? But what's their problem over and over again? They forget. What's our problem over and over again? We are not thinking about what the Lord's done for us. What are we thinking about? What we want to do, what we like, what's fun, what, what our goals are in this life and success and all that. We lose our perspective on what God's done. And so it's easy for us to rebel against him and not serve him with all our heart because we're not really loving him. We don't really think about what he's done. Other comments and thoughts on all that? Uh, I think verse 20 and following are really encouraging verses for, for any of us. After we've sinned and we've come to a realization of what we've done, I think we can really feel rejected by God and in despair. And that can, if we, if we really uh, dwell in that in an ungodly way, that just leads to more <coughs> sin, more despair, a downward spiral. And God's grace here, as, as you described it, is really the perfect solution for them to not sin after this. Um, he's gracious to them. He says, "I'm not going to." God doesn't forsake His people, and so turn and do right. Yes, this was a great sin, but you can do better and do it. And it just really kind of the perfect motivating grace of God. It's coupled hand in hand with the fear of the Lord. Excellent point. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it does motivate us to know that God's willing to accept us. Though we haven't gone so far into sin that repentance doesn't bring God's forgiveness and a new start. Again, if I were God, I'd have said that's the end of the line. No more help for you, but he's forgiving and patient, and he's trying to motivate them to do right so he can bless them. Other thoughts? All right, chapter 13, verses 1 to 10. 